0: Good morning to all of you. Uh, Welcome to uh, SF Bible, for those who just came in a little later. I'd like to uh, ask ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6. Today's passage is verse 20 through 26, but I I will read from verse 17 and following. Luke chapter 6, verse 17 to 26. And it seems like it's been a while since I kind of reviewed, but just as a kind of way of review... Uh, we are studying the Gospel of Luke uh, because the Gospel of Luke, it was written by Dr. Luke, the missionary associate of the Apostle Paul, to a man named Theophilus, uh, most likely a, a Gentile, maybe a Greek, who had come to, uh, he was, a, he was a, uh, someone who had followed the Jewish faith, and then when he had heard about that the Messiah was Christ, he had come to put his faith in Christ. Uh, but among... Uh, probably surprising to him and many other gentile people who had come to uh who were uh, god fearers and then who became followers of the Messiah Christ Jesus it was surprising that uh, many of the Jewish leaders many of the Jewish uh uh people at least uh, that were supposedly the religious elite were not putting their faith in Jesus in fact they were uh, people there were people like the apostle Paul for instance who were actually or before he was the apostle, when he was Saul, were, were actually persecuting the church. So it made many who had heard about Jesus wonder if they had understood the right thing. Maybe they had joined a cult, perhaps. Maybe they were. Maybe what they had been taught about Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah was wrong, for in, for for instance. And so. Luke writes, according to chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, he writes these things down in detailed, in detailed and in an orderly way so that the recipients of this letter would know for, know for sure that which uh, they had been taught about the Christ. They would know for true that they do they, they not need to forsake uh, their faith in Christ, Jesus Christ, but that they can continue to faithfully follow him. And so we've been reading this gospel with that focus in mind. And uh, we're now in chapter 6. So Luke chapter 6, verses 17 and 26. And today's passage is kind of an odd passage. When you kind of read it in your devotions, you kind of just go skip right through it because it's a a little odd. We don't normally hear this kind of terminology, these beatitudes and these woes. You know, you don't go around basically hearing somebody say, oh, blessed art thou, blessed are you, blessed are you. We don't go around hearing, woe is you, woe is you. I mean, uh, generally not unless... uh, (laughs) i said exactly unless you're talking to leo uh, my brother here who loves to preach and remind us that we are all under the judgment of gra- of god so but uh, but i want to explain hopefully the text this morning because it is of utmost uh importance for those of us who live in a world that hates jesus and we live in a world where we are called to live for jesus so hopefully we'll see the significance of this, not only this introductory section of the sermon, but the whole sermon that Jesus is going to preach in Luke chapter 6. Anyways, Luke 6, verse 17 through 26. Jesus came down with them, that's the uh, the 12 apostles, "and, and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him. And to be healed of the diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all And turning his gaze toward his disciples. He began to say Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God Blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be satisfied Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Let's go, to Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, beatitude and woes of Jesus that he proclaims and preaches to his disciples. And though, Lord, they are somewhat unfamiliar uh, kind of language. It's not language that we normally speak in today. Lord, help us by your Spirit to understand the significance of these words to the disciples who heard them and to understand its its interpretation and its meaning and its application for the disciples of Christ today. And God, we I pray that you would cause your word to go forth. And we thank you for everyone who have gathered here from our regular attenders and members to our visitors from far away. We pray that your word would speak to each one, that as Jesus speaks in his word, that, you would, that he would speak to each one here, that each one would hear what they need to hear from you, Lord, and that their lives would be examined, that they would be transformed and changed, conformed into the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would equip your church now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you uh, read the headlines, uh, you can't help but get a sense uh, that we live in a world that is at least seemingly increasingly hostile to followers of Christ. In fact, to speak of a holy God who judges mankind for their sin is not the most popular message of all. It doesn't trend on Twitter. Uh, To speak of the exclusivity of Christ as the only way to The one and true living God rubs many people the wrong way. To speak of the reality of heaven and hell, of sin and our helplessness against sin, of Jesus, the Son of God, who died and rose again, is incompatible with most modern secular worldview. And we haven't even started to talk about what the Bible has to say about the other side issues of sexuality, gender, and life that will get you in deep trouble in our political climate. But Christians really ought not to be surprised that we face hostility for our faith as is handed down from the scriptures. In truth, really, there has always been opposition to those who trust in Jesus. It's not just in our days, but it's in every era where there has been followers of Christ. Jesus, in fact, taught this In John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19, he said this to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You see, the followers of Christ experienced the hatred of the world because the world hated Jesus first. They did not like who he claimed to be, they did not like the message that he proclaimed, and they did not like what he called them to do to respond. Jesus himself experienced the world's hatred. And Luke has already documented it for us in even the short, brief uh, chapters of chapters 4 to 6. They Really the introduction to Jesus' Galilean ministry. We saw time and time again where the scribes and Pharisees were so filled with opposition to Jesus that they tried to trip him up. They tried to catch him in some great sin, even sins that were worthy of death. But each time Jesus would speak with authority, with clarity, with truth, and he would escape their their schemes. But we saw at the end of, uh, uh, arriving at the end of chapter 6, uh, verse 11, that they were then Filled with rage, they were so angry. They're frustrated. They thought he was a blasphemer, someone who was bring a, an, a who was offensive to their religion. Their religion that they, they started to just talk among one another how they might destroy Jesus. Now, when we last time we saw how Jesus responded to this increasing opposition. For Jesus, in face of increasing opposition from the religious leaders, knowing that it would lead to his ultimate crucifixion, what does he do? He chooses twelve, as we saw in, in chapter six, uh, later six chapter six, verse twelve through uh, nineteen. Jesus tells 12, twelve men among his disciples whom he would call apostles, and these in whom he would tr- train and teach and entrust the continuation of his gospel ministry, for he knew that in a short while he would die. Upon choosing the 12, we look at verse 17. He comes down from the mountain, and he arrives at a level place. And there we see there's a large crowd and throng of people there, really, there are two groups of people here. There was a large crowd of disciples. These were the followers of Christ. These were people who were students, learners. They, were, they wanted to learn Jesus' teaching, and they, they followed after him. Uh, there was probably nearby was the, were the 12, the apostles. Just shortly around beyond them was probably those who traveled with him everywhere that he went that supported his ministry. And then the other disciples who kind of were in the region just happened to be there and, and learning and listening because he was in town preaching. And then beyond that is this: it says a throng of other peoples, a great throng. And they're from all over Judea, from as far away as Jerusalem. In fact, they're even outside of Judea. They go all the way to Tyre and Sidon, Sidon uh, modern-day Syria, Lebanon areas. So, all these people, and so there are disciples and then there are non disciples, but they've come because why? Because, well, Jesus is the most popular man on the planet on Earth at that time. He was known for his miracles. He could heal any disease, he could hear any sickness. If you had a demon, he could cast it out. And surely, if you had a disease, you had a, uh, a lifelong illness, and you heard about Jesus, you would go to Jesus. People go to different countries to try all sorts of different types of medicine for, their, for cures for cancer, for cures for diseases that are otherwise inoperable or incurable here. But you can imagine what it was like when Jesus walked on earth. Everyone was seeking him out, and everyone was getting healed. Not only that, though, there, Jesus wasn't just one who could heal, but he was one who people wanted to go hear. He was the kind of guy, he was one who could teach with authority His sermons were better than any sermon anyone else on the planet Earth, nor anyone else since then has ever preached. People, when they hear him, they would hear a man who didn't just speak what other people said. He wouldn't quote other authors. He wouldn't quote, oh, what John MacArthur said, Mark Devers said. He wouldn't quote what Albert Moeller said. He wouldn't quote some dead Puritan said. He would just simply say what God said. And he would say it with clarity, with conviction. And people knew that this was the Word of God that's why people went to hear him so you can imagine this great crowd but notice with this great crowd and just the opportunity to preach them but when he when luke records the very first sermon that he preaches in the gospel of luke here is probably not his first sermon, but it's the first one that luke records who is he addressed to verse 20 and turning his gaze toward his disciples he began to say so Jesus' sermon here is a sermon directed toward his disciples. It's directed to those who say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. This sermon, verse 20 to 49, is the very first word that Jesus speaks to prepare his disciples, the 12 particularly, but the disciples at large, to follow. so that they would be prepared to follow him in a world that hates him. It encouraged Jesus' disciples who were there to hear it, to start, help them to process why there was opposition to Jesus, why eventually he would die and be crucified at the, hands of, at the because he was handed over by the religious leaders. It would be an encouragement to the recipients of Luke's gospel who would read it and understand why there was so much persecution of them for following Jesus. And it encourages Jesus' disciples today. You and I, who follow Jesus in a world that still hates him? We can look at this sermon. We could—it's could, if you read it, you can probably read it in two minutes. Uh, perhaps there was more to it that Jesus said, but I want to break the sermon down, even though it's—it's uh, it's really one sermon that was delivered in one day in one setting. But I want to break it down to three parts, and we're going to look at it in the next three weeks. Because it is a a significant sermon. It's a significant sermon not only in that day, but it's for you and me too. It's a Jesus sermon prepares his disciples. And it breaks down three parts. First of all, in verse 20 to 26, there's going to be what's called a a prophetic word of encouragement. Jesus encourages his disciples. He he speaks a word of blessing and a word of woe, believes beatitudes and woes to them. Uh, But they're meant to encourage his disciples. Then in verse 27 to 38, we're going to see the heart of the message. The heart of his sermon is the call for exceptional love. And we're going to basically conclude, if we look at the whole sermon as a whole, Jesus calls his disciples to prepare and to live and to serve and minister in a world that hates Jesus and therefore hates and persecutes his followers to basically be known by their exceptional love, a love for even their enemies, a love that, is, uh, that, that seeks the good of all in this world, even when others may mistreat you. Then he will end his sermon in, ex- in verse 39 to 49 with an exhortation to genuine faith. Now, uh, just kind of some background. Just a lot of times when we preach this sermon, you might start thinking, "Well, this, this sermon sounds very familiar to the Sermon on the Mount that we read in the very beginning of our sermon, Matthew 5 to 7. And some scholars believe that they're actually the same sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is the same as the sermon here in Luke chapter 6. Though mm, I would point out that uh, Luke says that Jesus went came down to a level place. So sometimes this sermon is called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, it's possible that it's the same sermon. It's possible. But I would agree with the many other scholars, and we don't have to be dogmatic about it, but I think it's just helpful for us to understand and get the feel for this, that Jesus probably preached more than just, you know, two sermons, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse. Those are really the two primary <laughs> sermons that you kind of hear Jesus, uh, that are recorded of Jesus in the, in the Gospels. He, he ministered for three years on, on earth. Uh, he probably used every day to preach a sermon probably preached multiple sermons multiple days and so as a preacher you can imagine you're preaching the same and preaching message over and over you're going to start conveying some similar words similar thoughts and you the thoughts will be the same but the wording might change here and there for instance if you compared the second service to the first service you're going to find that the thoughts are generally the same but my wording changes and it just changes because well I, that's how i say it at the moment or maybe i see one of your faces and it just makes me change the way i want to say something <laughs> It, I do sometimes. Oh, I want to say something to you, just in this particular way. Um, but, yeah. and so Jesus, I believe this is a, a different sermon, just because it's, it's a different length. It explains why there's different wording in, in the sermon as well. But this is a sermon on the mount. Or this is the sermon on the plain. And so today, as we examine these, this, the first part of the sermon, verse 20 to 26, we just read beat, blessings and woes. Jesus begins with these beatitudes and woes. And it's just, to tell you the truth, it's odd, right? If if, if any of you are here your first time, you've never shown up at a church before, you read this like, whoa, that's some weird stuff. I I don't really understand what that means. And, well, that's a good, honest question. And hopefully that we can explain to you the significance of these blessings and woes. For in them, Jesus offers to his disciples basically two prophetic words, two types of words, two kinds of prophetic words as a word of blessing and there's a word of woe and he gives these two prophetic words to prepare them for following the lord following him in a world that hates him or that is opposed to him that doesn't like his message that doesn't like the the truths about him um i say these are two prophetic words because they are like prophecy they are they are words that jesus speaks to his disciples that are going to take place in the future that there's a blessing that's waiting in the future for them, and there is a woe to some of his disciples in the future. So let's take a look then at this first section. So it's a pretty simple outline. First of all, we see the prophetic word of blessing. There's a word of blessing that Jesus gives to his disciples, and it's meant to be an encouragement to them. Jesus begins with a series of four beatitudes, we call it, four blessings. You notice that in verse 20, 20 through 23, we'll see, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, Blessed are, okay? So four times you'll see that phrase, blessed are. We call these beatitudes, and you kind of wonder, what's a beatitude? Oh, man. When you look up the word beatitude, it simply means a supreme blessing, an ultimate blessing. It is a, the word blessing, but it's like the ultimate blessing. The greatest blessing that there can be is the blessings that, God, that Jesus pronounces in his word. These are greater than the blessing than, you know, uh, uh, than any good thing that might happen to you on earth. That's, uh, the, that's a beatitude. And they'll follow with four woes. Now, if you compare the beatitudes and the woes, you'll see that there's an obvious parallelism here. They're meant to parallel each other. The poor parallels the rich, the hungry with the filled, the weeping with the laughing, the persecuted or the, the hated with the loved, those who are praised. Each set of these four descriptions describes a different kind of disciple. There is a kind of disciple that God will bless, and there is a kind of disciple that God will curse. And Jesus begins by prophesying of God's blessings upon his disciples. Four times he'll say, blessed. But notice he says, blessed are you. Most of us are familiar with Matthew's Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the, and it's a very kind of more impersonal recording there. But here Jesus says, blessed are you. He's, it's as if he's, he's speaking to disciples, but he's actually looking at each one of them. He says, blessed are you. You know, I'm saying to the, you, and I'm looking at you, you probably like, ooh, I'm special, right? But the, Jesus, the creator of the earth, the son of God, when he speaks and he says, blessed are you, that's a promise that you can count on, that you can guarantee because he speaks truth. And it's a, it's a personal word to, to the, his disciples. Blessed are you. This, uh, of the, the idea of blessedness is a, is a major theme in Luke. In fact, of the 30 times that the word blessed is used in all the Gospels, half of them are in Luke. You can there's only four Gospels. Half of them are found by, in Luke. And we understand that in this way, because Luke is concerned in his Gospel to convey to his readers that they're of the blessing of following Christ. Remember, they, they're, being, they're questioning whether it's, it's right to keep following Christ because there's all this opposition. Maybe they maybe believe wrongly about this Jesus of Nazareth. Luke offers Jesus' words about the blessedness of following Christ, and he offers it to them as a, as a promise, as a hope, encouragement, so they would continue to be faithful, that they would not forsake Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the idea of blessedness is, basically, you're blessed if you're one who trusts and fears God. Psalm 212 says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 8412 says, "O Lord, of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you, uh, Psalm 112 verse 1, praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Now, that Old Testament comment, uh, concept kind of carries into the New Testament, but the New Testament, beyond, there's an additional idea when it comes to the Beatitudes. That the Beatitudes, when Jesus speaks to them, they often bear a, a paradoxical quality. That the ultimate and supreme blessedness is that Jesus speaks of is not what Everyday person expects for Jesus to say it's not what we expect because there's there's almost a, there's a reversal or a turning on its head of the values of man because what man thinks is blessed is not in the kingdom of God and what man thinks is not blessed is in the kingdom of God and that's what we find in the beatitudes on the, the sermon on the mount as well as the beatitudes here in Luke So let's take a closer look at these Beatitudes. What does Jesus say? Who does he pronounce blessing upon? And what is the the nature of that blessing? First of all, he gives a prophetic word of blessing to those of you who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's how you're blessed. You you possess the kingdom of God. The blessed here are the poor. And, And this is, when we hear the word poor, we think of it, if you just read it plainly, the plain sense is that it refers to someone of a lower socioeconomic status. They don't have much financial means. They have very little material possessions. And that, you, and though, despite uh, the interpretation that we're going to arrive at, you can never take that away from the meaning of this word. That Jesus' disciples, especially in the early days, were primarily among the poor. The ones who responded to him were the poor. They were not generally not the wealthy, not the powerful. They were the poor and helpless. But nevertheless, there is a spiritual sense to to this idea of poor. When he speaks of "Blessed are you who are poor," it should draw our minds to what happened earlier in chapter four of Luke, verse eighteen. Remember when Jesus entered the the synagogue of Nazareth? This is it's the very first. incident or a, a story in in the luke's record of jesus galilee ministry he goes to Nazareth. he sits in the synagogue they called upon him to teach he's handed the scroll of isaiah he rolls and scrolls to isaiah 61 verse 1 and according to luke 4 18 he reads in this way he says the spirit of the lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor that's the same word here in uh that's blessed are the poor Jesus came to fulfill this, Isaiah 61, verse 1, that he came to have a spirit-empowered ministry, and he came to preach the good news, the gospel, and he came primarily to preach it to the poor. Now, in the Hebrew text of Isaiah 61, the word translated as poor in Luke refers to the term that is also translated as afflicted. There's more than just the fact that they are poor. There's idea of affliction here. Those who are, because of their circumstances, because of their condition, have been humbled. The afflicted or, or the poor, those who are so humbled by their condition that they, they have no other means, no other recourse but to seek the Lord for help. The, uh, the scholars often call this, or refer to them as the pious poor. Because the blessed here are not just all the poor. But it's the poor who recognize their helplessness and turn to him. Let me show you uh, how uh, the Old Testament brings this out. In Psalm 22, verse 24, God, uh, God says, or God is, says, for he, it's spoken of God, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. That's the same uh, Greek Hebrew word that's translated poor in, in uh, Luke. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. See, God has a special sensitivity. He has a special awareness, hearing to the poor. You know, the rest of the world neglects the poor. Even sometimes the church neglects the poor. It would ought not to be. But God does not neglect the poor. He hears them when they cry to him for help. Psalm 34, 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So Jesus really, when he pronounces a blessing to the poor, he isn't promising blessing simply because their income is, at, is below a certain level. They're, they're, at the, they're below the poverty line. Jesus is promising blessing upon the poor because they are generally the kind of people who, because of their desperate, desperate circumstances, will turn in dependence upon God, upon the Lord for help. They will cry out to him. They will call out to him. For help in their troubles. And God loves to answer the cry of help from the poor. And so doing they then, God says, Jesus says, they are those who possess the kingdom of God. Because when you turn to God for help, you will turn to him for help for, for all that you need. And what we ultimately need is a right relation with God. And Jesus promised those who are poor uh, to, that they will inherit the kingdom of God. They will have the kingdom of God. See, kingdom citizenship belongs to those who humbly look to the Lord in their need. To be part of that the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on earth when he returns is the inheritance or is the possession of those who are poor and call and turn and cry out to God. You know, we wouldn't know this if we think about what the average, well, the average mega church probably uh, across America preaches. Uh, you've heard of many of the prosperity gospel preachers out there, and they would tell you that who are the blessed? The rich are blessed, right? The rich are blessed. The healthy are blessed. They're, that's why they're, ri- they're rich, because God blessed them. They are the ones who obviously have received God's favor, and this was, the, by the way, this is not just true in America, this was the belief of many of the Jewish people in that day, that they would see a rich person, and they'd say, oh yeah, obviously that person has been blessed by God, obviously that person is saved but that would be the farthest from the truth from Scripture. Rather, Jesus says it is the poor who are blessed. It is the poor who are blessed. They are the ones who, because of their poverty, have turned and trust in the Lord. They recognize that they are not only spiritually bankrupt, but they are physically bankrupt. And they try. They turn to God and trust. Now, having said what Jesus explained this to us, it, this certainly does not preclude a rich person from trusting in the Lord and inheriting the kingdom, okay? So you can like whew, all you homeowners. Like, An SF. Surely anyone who humbles himself like the poor, who recognizes their desperate need, their bankruptness spiritually and physically, can trust in Jesus for salvation. But conversely, a poor person, just by the second the poor, who does not trust in the Lord, will not experience the blessing of the kingdom of God. You see, the key is the humble condition of the soul. But it is the circumstances of being poor or poverty that drives many to recognize a need. And that's true for many of us, right? Uh, Many of us were in a desperate state that drove us to cry out to God because we we couldn't find what we we thought we needed anywhere else. It drove us to uh, the Bible or the church or a Christian, and you came to know about salvation in Christ. It is this interpretation that Matthew more specifically fleshes out in his uh, in his beatitude in or his record of the beatitude in Matthew 5 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So with this understanding of the poor the rest of the beatitudes basically follow in a similar interpretation. Yes there is a actual physical reality there. They're poor. they're, They're weeping. They're hungry and such. But underlying that is a is a, hum, is a circumstance, condition that caused them to be humbled to cry out to God for help, to turn independence upon the Lord. So we see that then, not only are you, the blessed are the poor, you who are poor, but secondly, blessed, Jesus says, are you who hunger. You who hunger. <laughs> um, and it's already 1215, and so many of you probably are feeling hunger. So no, that doesn't mean that you're blessed, okay? Um, I was just had to say that. Okay, but So, but just like God cares for the poor, so he also cares for the hungry. And there are people who have little, usually they're associated with the poor because they don't have resources, so they go without food. And, but it would also be true for Jesus' disciples. You know, many times we think of, uh, there's a lot of wealth in the church of Jesus Christ today, but in the original, in the early days of the church, there was a lot of poverty. Think about the 3,000 in the church in Jerusalem. Think about how people had to start selling their stuff because there were a lot of people that were, didn't have means, and they were in Jerusalem, and there was, a, there was a lot of sharing among the churches. Think about the when the, the, the churches in Jerusalem, there was a great famine, there was great need. The Macedonian churches had to raise up funds, and, and they were poor too, but they raised up funds to try to sell, help and support. The church hasn't always been rich and, uh, and wealthy, and uh, we've, the church has grown over the years, and as mentioned, there's lots of properties owned and bank accounts and such, but let us remember that we, though we may be rich, uh, earthly, we are ultimately we are all poor. But those who are hungry, the disciples would have found themselves hungry when they were sent out uh, by Jesus. They would have been, uh, and they would have recognized their need. And when recognizing their need, they would turn to God and for what they needed. And not only, they w- when you turn to God for your need of food, you ultimately will turn to God Recognizing what you ultimately need. Because man does not live on bread alone, right? But on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need God's word. and God's word reveals to us his righteousness. Matthew 5, 6, kind of the parallel to this beatitude says, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Notice the promised blessing to those who are hungry is now in the future. It's again... That they will be satisfied, that on earth the disciples of Jesus may find themselves hungry at times. And if, and but yet ultimately, one day when Jesus returns in his kingdom, you shall sit at his banquet table, and your cup will overflow, and you will lack nothing, and you will have every need satisfied, every desire satisfied, because you will be in that kingdom. Those who hunger leads them to hunger for God, who will find in the kingdom that. Which will be, that, they, that which will satisfy them, and that satisfaction is in God himself. They will find that he is enough for every circumstance, every trial that we face on this earth. Satisfaction. You feel you're singing that song, I can't get no satisfaction? It's because you don't know the Lord. Satisfaction is the Lord. Isaiah would refer to this, in fact, in Isaiah 55, verse 1-2. We covered this when we went through Isaiah. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God just calls you to come. You're hungry, you're thirsty, come to him. You can buy from him for free. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Come to him, come to God, come to him and he will give you that which is truly satisfying. That which will truly quench your thirst. Don't waste your wages, your energy, seeking after things in this world that will never satisfy you. Along the same lines, and only blessed are those who hunger, blessed are you who weep, it says in verse 20, latter part 21, for you shall laugh. The poor and hungry find themselves in circumstances that cause them to basically to weep, to be to sorrow. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you understand this world, and you have a biblical worldview. There are going to be many times that you're just going to weep over this world. You're going to weep over unrepentant sin. Whether it's a unrepentant sin in, in your in your own family, maybe a teenage teenager who's turned away from God, or in the church. We'll weep over lost souls, many people going around this world thinking that all's well, and they're entering into eternity without Christ in hell. We'll weep over persecution that happens not just to us but to our fellow saints around the world. We'll weep at the the, the curse of sin that manifests in death that affects each and every one of us many of our loved ones before our life's over. But Jesus promises the blessing that one day, though we weep on this earth, that one day in the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, you shall laugh, you shall find joy, you shall rejoice. Lastly, we, Jesus says, not you are hunger, you who weep. I'm sorry, I'll catch up here. But fourthly, blessed are you who the world hates. Verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, insult you, Scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Verse twenty-two is the key verse, I believe, to interpreting the whole passage, because up to this point, we could just simply take the poor, the hungry, uh, and, and the, those who weep, basically for the physical aspects of it. But here in verse twenty-two, when he says, "When the world hate blessed are you," when the world hates you, that is a that's a key f- a passage for us. It tells us that disciples of jesus may find themselves hated ostracized insulted and scorned and they will do find themselves in those those circumstances because of because of jesus for the sake of the son of man they will believe that jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies and therefore they will face persecution or suffering and they should not be surprised because uh, that the world hated our lord or hated us because they hated the lord first In fact, it may even be the reason that disciples will find themselves poor, hungry, and weeping. You just think about, even around the world today, America is really the exception than the norm. Many of our Christian brothers or saints around the world are experiencing persecution. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're being denied their livelihood. They're being separated from their families. They're separated from their freedom. They're imprisoned. Some of them are losing, are actually losing their lives. They're losing their material possessions. They're being denied uh, their social gatherings, their social networks because they proclaim Christ. But a commitment to follow Jesus, according to the scripture, leads to persecution. John 15, remember that? In verse 20, Jesus continues and says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. See, Jesus is very clear. We're, if we're followers of Christ, we're, he's our master, we're his slave or servants. Then if they persecuted Jesus and we're bringing the same message of Jesus to the world, they're going to also persecute us, persecute you. But to all his disciples who suffer for his name, Jesus offers joy. What is, he says they're blessed. Why? Because they, you have joy. In fact, verse 23 is significant because it says, be glad in that day and leap for joy. That's a, it's a command. You can rejoice in that day that you experience suffering. When you experience suffering or ostracism or persecution or hatred, you can rejoice in that day. You can leap for joy even. That's, that's pretty exciting. Why? There's a twofold reason both in the, uh, introduced by the, the conjunction for. First of all, number one reason why you can rejoice, why you're blessed and you can rejoice, because for, behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus reminds his disciples that whatever, what matters is not your reward on earth, it's not the things that we gain on earth, not the earthly temporal treasures that we're all gaining, you know, it's not the things that we're, we're, we're the, the places we can see on earth, not the, the relations that we even can build on earth, it's nothing that we gain on earth of, that is of a temporal nature, is going to remain. We will lose them all. But what matters most is heavenly, eternal treasures. It says your reward in heaven is great because the rewards that we, the treasures that we store up in heaven will not perish, will not rust, cannot be stolen because they're stored up in heaven for you. Whereas all the treasures of earth can be stolen, broken into, taken by thieves, destroyed by corruption and decay. Our greatest treasure when we suffer is to know that, yes, they may take away my livelihood. Yes, they may take away I may lose my job. Yes, I may I may lose my freedom. Yes, I may lose even my, my family. But what they can never take away from me is Christ. And the hope of eternal life, presence, citizenship in the kingdom of God that's going to last forever. And brothers and sisters, for those of you who are not suffering, that kind of just, to tell you the truth, it's sort of like, mm, oh, that's nice. That's nice. But I guarantee you, for our brothers and sisters around the world who are literally right now, suffering, losing Losing everything because they follow Jesus and wondering, is this all worth it? Jesus' words can only strengthen them. What a powerful promise. It says, for your reward is great in heaven. Remember that, brothers and sisters, when you face persecution. The second reason to rejoice, though, is this. He says, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Why can you rejoice when you experience persecution? Because in the same way, the world's, their fathers used to treat the prophets of old. You're not alone in your suffering. Because the world used to treat the prophets of God in the very same way. They brought the message of God. They preached the, 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 uh, to, uh, the message of repentance and faith in God. And they were persecuted. One of the stories, one of the Bible stories that my children love the most and in and one of the Bibles is this one where there's a man in the pit. They say, oh, I want to read the man in the pit story. And you know what story that is? Jeremiah, okay? I don't know. There's a lot of the man in the pit stories, but Jeremiah, <laughs> okay? And Jeremiah, because he preached the gospel, well, not preaching, but he preached the word of God, he was thrown in a pit and he would have died there unless God sent people to deliver him. Brothers, sisters, when you experience persecution, when you're suffering, when you're being persecuted for the, for the sake of the name of Jesus, know that you are not alone. You stand in good company. You stand in the company of men like Jeremiah and all the other prophets. And think of all the, the line of martyrs throughout the, the start of the church to this day that have all laid their life down for the sake of Christ. And to all of them, Jesus says, you may lose everything here on earth, but your reward is great in heaven, and they know it, and they possess it, and that isn't something that can never be taken away. As disciples of Jesus, your identity with him and your commitment to follow his ways and serve him through the faithful proclamation of the gospel will lead to persecution. Now, in America, we have, we have a great freedom, and we generally are never going to, uh, I hope it will never lead to the, the kind of persecution we see around the world. But nevertheless, if you proclaim the message of the gospel, you will face a form of persecution, of ostracism, of hatred, of scorn. If you are a faithful Christian who calls sin sin, you are hated. People will say, "How dare you judge? How dare you say that I can't live, I can't sleep with all the people I want to sleep with? You can't judge me. I'm a believer in Jesus." Think of Christians who are ostracized, the many industries in our, in our country, like the entertainment industry, higher education to name two, where holding to a biblical viewpoint will endanger your career, will, will prevent you from getting a promotion, in fact, will oftentimes lead to your dismissal, or at least a reason for your dismissal. As Christians, when you follow Christ's ways, you will be insulted. If you believe in creation, what? You're, you, got your, you probably believe the earth is flat too. What? You believe in the resurrection? You're an anti-vaxxer, aren't you? You've got your head in the ground. You'll be labeled anti-science. You will be, and if brothers sister, if you follow God, you'll be called evil. You'll be labeled hateful. You will say, you'll be called a hater woman if you oppose abortion. Because it's just flesh. It's just tissue. It's all about choice. And I am, and we all should remember many saints around the world who have been imprisoned, assaulted, threatened, and murdered for their faith in Jesus, in Jesus, and yet nevertheless because of the promise of God, because of the promise of blessing, the the hope of of the kingdom of God, they continue to strive to serve him. They continue to hold fast to the gospel of Christ, to those Jesus offers his blessings, And while those blessings all await future fulfillment when the kingdom of of God will be established on earth, they are what gives hope in the present. Brothers and sisters, whatever obstacles we may face in following Christ, let us also hold on to Jesus' promise and remain faithful. Because the alternative is not very pleasant. Prophetic, and that's uh, in the last few moments I have, let me just go over the prophetic word of woe. Just as there are four words of blessing, there are four words of woe they're unique to Luke. And these words of woe are addressed, keep in mind, they're addressed to his disciples. Those who say, I'm a Christian. Those who say, I follow Christ. Those who say, yes, I, they might even say, I believed in Jesus. These are disciples. I'm learning to follow Jesus' example. These are disciples, and Jesus pronounces a word of woe to them. Quite surprising. First, there is a woe to those of you who are rich. Just like those who are poor are blessed, those who are rich. And this refers to, yes, it does include those who are socioeconomically rich. And that's the majority of us in this room, probably. But is it simply because you're rich that you're condemned? No. But the rich are of such, have such great possessions or have such great means at their disposal that oftentimes what happens when we're rich is that we depend upon our material possessions. We depend upon our self-sufficiency. We depend upon our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our education before we depend upon the Lord. And so it's not wrong to be rich, but to be self-sufficient in our riches, to, to, be, to, be, to not depend upon God, even as we uh, have great wealth, is to, to be under the promise of woe. Don't trust, don't trust in your riches if you are rich. Trust in the Lord. for Jesus pronounces, woe upon the rich. And those of you who are wealthy disciples of Jesus, who do not rely on Jesus, who, you know, you might say you're a Christian, but day to day you don't trust in Jesus. You don't talk to Jesus. You don't cry out to Jesus. You're not looking to Jesus for help, for guidance, for wisdom. Whatever you do, you may be deceived. You may be deceived. The comfort, Jesus says here, the woe to you is this. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. You think you live a comfortable life. You think you're, you're, you're okay. But Jesus says, the comfort you have right now is all the comfort you're going to have. There will be no comfort in the future. No com- future comfort in the kingdom. And Luke has uh, several, and I was going to share a couple, but I'm going to uh, skip that. And I want to just simply add, though, that this does not mean that all rich are condemned. We can think of Zacchaeus, who was a, a, a tax gatherer, tax collector who had come to faith in Christ. We can think of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man who had a, a tomb that he, that where Jesus' body was laid. And those were rich people, but they were, not, they were believers and followers of Christ, genuine followers of Christ. But nevertheless, those of us who are rich, let's not just gloss over this. Let's, let's really heed the warning. Because we don't want to, maybe, we don't really see it because we're, we're in it. But I bet you if you bring Christians from around the world, and they would watch us, you know, American Christians, you know, they would probably see our materialism just oozing out. They would just see how we trust in our wealth more than we trust in God. And sometimes, conversely, when we go and we're sending out some of our missions team to different places, and some places where there is, there's there's great need, when you go on mission trips, and those of you that have gone on short-term mission, you go to places where there is great poverty, great desperate physical needs and, and health needs, et cetera. You really do start seeing that there is a people out there who, by all our our American standards, they are desperately poor, but because they're followers of Christ, because they have Christ, they are actually rich. They're not complaining. They're in comfort, they're, they're, they are experiencing discomfort in the present, but they have the hope of comfort in the future. If you're, and therefore, if we are wealthy in this world, we, God gives us wealth, wealth is not bad, okay? But God gives us wealth so that we might be generous to others. Let's share it with others, let's, uh, let's be rich toward God and his work, uh, if you're rich, if you're enjoying your riches for yourself, you are in danger of receiving your comfort in full. That's what Jesus says. Now the rest of the woes follow in similar kind of interpretation. Woe to you who are well fed, so if you have enough food. If you don't and you you kind of you're so full that you realize, oh, I got all this food. I'm all happy, but you forget who to thank, right? You don't you forget to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Every day, every day you eat, every meal you eat, is from God. But sometimes we we have so much food. We forget that that's from God. That's why it's good to teach our children to pray. Yes, do they have to legalistically do it every single meal? No. But why do we teach them that? Because we want to remind them that every day, every meal that we eat is from God. And you need God. You depend upon God. We can just convey that to our kids. Don't just teach it. Parents, just, I'm trying to work on that. Don't just teach it, just to teach it legalistically. Let's, let's try to somehow use it to teach them that this is why you, this, we pray. so Because we remember that we depend upon God for all that we need. But those who are, who are well-fed and don't, and don't trust in God will, will, will be hungry when the kingdom comes because they will not be part of that kingdom. And then there, thirdly, uh, you are well-fed, you who laugh. Now, this isn't a condemnation of laughing itself because I like to laugh myself, right? But I was just thinking, you know, there's some churches out there that probably take this verse, oh, woe to you who laugh now? You know, and it's like, you've got to be a serious church. No laughing. I saw you smiling. Shame on you. You know, you can just picture, right, church is like, we're biblical. What do, you, what do you laugh, right? No, no, I'm just kidding. But that's, what do you laugh? You know, the idea of laughing here is not just that you're being jovial. In the Greek Old Testament, the, the, this word is tied to basically, um, this word is used of a boastful laughing. It's, it's a self-satisfied laugh, a condescending kind of laugh, a rejoicing kind of laugh, where you're laughing at other people because they are experiencing harm, pain. The one who laughs in this way is basically is an, such a disciple who who, um, who who thinks that their life is the result of their own strength and labor is, does not give glory to God. Life They think that life is awesome, life is good, but there's no mourning over sin. There's no mourning over the world that's lost. Jesus warned such disciples that they might laugh now, but one day they will mourn and weep. And lastly, we arrived at the last... Woe to you who the world praises. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's interesting because there is a sense where we want the world to speak well of you, right? We should have a good testimony before our world. That when you go talk to my neighbors or I go talk to your neighbors, if you're a Christian, I hope that they would say, well, no, yeah, uh, he or she, they're, they're, good. they're just good Christians. They're, they're great neighbors. We hope that's the case. I know we're not perfect, but we hope that generally that is the case. But here, Jesus pronounces a woe to you when all men speak well of you. And so it's not just necessarily speaking well of you. And again, this is a key interpretive uh, verse. is that they speak well of you because of what is coming out of your mouth as a follower of Christ. Okay? This is the kind of praise that comes from men because they like what you are saying. They like the message that you bring. Your message that you share doesn't offend but tickles the ears you say things that the world wants to hear you avoid subjects those those kind of oh those really depressing subjects like sin and judgment you avoid the supernatural discussions about oh well it was created evolved it's all the same you know Uh, you avoid the idea of resurrection well you know yeah resurrection yeah that's you know that kind of supernatural kind of wizardry kind of like but you know jesus you know jesus died for our sins that's what really what matters you talk about motivational thinking, perhaps. People like that. I mean, people love when you're just like, oh, yeah, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Oh, man, go. Three pointer. You talk about doing all things. <laughs> you talk about li- living, you can live your best life now. Do you not wait for a kingdom, the he- heaven to come? Now you can have that best life. Just buy my book. And then people love, well, the world loves, you know, when you just simply tell them, here are 10 steps to a better you, okay? Everybody loves to improve ourselves, okay? I, I, I eat that stuff up but too sometimes. But, you know, we all want simply steps to a better you. And not to say that we shouldn't be better, okay? We all should be better. We can be better. But the world, that kind of message that does that, that avoids all the es- essential aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a blasphemy message. And when the world hears that much of the message, they're gonna say they're gonna love you. And we're tempted to bring that kind of message when we live in a world that does not like that gospel. We all are, okay? I am, and then you probably are too. But Jesus encourages us says, Whoa, with this woe to warn us away from that. Because, and he says, for their fathers, that's the world's fathers, used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Here's the, here's the slap in the face. If you even think about bringing another message, we'll say, you know what? The world used to like the false prophets for the same thing, for bringing a false message, a message that would say, oh, yes, you're going to have victory over your enemies. Go and fight them, king. When the prophets, true prophets say, hey, no, king, don't go there because you're going to die. I know you don't like that message, but that's the truth. And the the fact is, the message of Jesus Christ is this. Because we are all under the curse of sin, we are all going to die. And it's worse than that. We're not just going to die. We're going to spend eternity in hell. Conscious, eternal wrath, torment. And that's not a pleasant thought for anyone. But the great news, the wonderful Good news is that God, out of his love and mercy, sent his son to die on the cross in place of us for our sins, so that everyone who believes, whoever believes, you, me, anyone who recognizes their desperate need, recognizes their need for forgiveness of sins, can come to him and believe upon Christ and have their sins forgiven and be saved. That's the message that we bring, and that's the message we need to continue to bring, don't be like the false, don't do not be tempted to be like the false prophets, because for them there is a message of woe. So let me conclude just simply summarizing this. Jesus basically offers two kinds of prophetic words. There's are word, prophetic words of blessing, and there are prophetic words of woe. And there are two kinds of prophetic words for two kinds of disciples. For disciples who basically will follow Christ. And for disciples who don't choose to follow Christ. They say they believe in Christ, but they don't follow Christ. They don't speak Christ's words. They don't live Christ's, they don't obey Christ's words. And then Jesus says to them, they might call themselves my disciples, but here's my word to you. Whoa. And here's my word to you, those of you who call yourselves Christians, and you speak my words, you proclaim my gospel, you obey my words, you live according, you follow my example, you go forth faithfully here's my word, of bless and word to you, and that's blessing. Yours is the kingdom of God. Blessings and woes, and this, is, and this is the encouragement to those who live in a world that hates Jesus and consequently hates those who follow him. The question for us is, which word is for you? There are men, one's meant to be encouragement. One's meant to be a warning. Where are you at this point in your life? Listen to, don't listen to my word for it. Read the scriptures. What does it say? Is Jesus, does what Jesus says true or not? And let let God speak to you and make transformation. If there's repentance, repent and believe upon Christ and follow him as a true disciple. Don't be a false disciple who will experience all that they can in this world, but in the end, when Christ returns, will find woe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's a hard word, Lord, from Jesus today, but yet I pray that it's an encouraging word too, that you would cause us to as a church, first and foremost, to examine our own lives. Lord, here we are all calling ourselves Christians, but are we living according to your ways? Show us, Father. I know none of us are perfect. We all still have sin in different areas that maybe we're not aware of. Show it to us, Lord. Reveal it to us so that we might walk in obedience to you. And, Father, help us to never forsake the message that Christ came to deliver, a message of the good news to the poor to all who are need, who are needy and under the curse of sin. Help us to be faithful to that message, to proclaim that message, just as the 12 did, just as the disciples of Christ did throughout the ages and to our day. Help us to be faithful to your word. God, guard us, especially in the, in the face of persecution and, 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 and that, we would, that you would help us to be courageous and not be fearful and that we would turn away from the message that you've entrusted to us. Help us to be bold. Help us to never satis- be satisfied or, or just simply sit, uh, sit on the sidelines and enjoy what we th- our best life now, for our best life is still to come. And God, help us to, to, live, to live our lives for Christ, as followers of Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.